0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3 tonight. As you make your way to Matthew chapter 3, may I just remind you that gospel means what? Good news. All right, you're on the ball. Anybody remember what Matthew's name means? Gift of God, excellent, excellent. Somebody's been paying attention. So Matthew's gospel is the good news of the gift of God. And for a little background, you know that we like to do this. Um, Slip a pen or piece of paper or your finger or something in Matthew chapter 3 there and turn with me to Luke's gospel, chapter 1. You've heard me say this a thousand times. But a thousand and one never hurts. I believe that the Bible is the best commentary we have on the Bible. There's a lot of different commentaries out there on the Bible, but I think the Bible is the best commentary that we have on the Bible. So we cross-reference things, and that's what I'd like to do tonight. So... Um, as you open your Bibles, a couple of things I want you to do. I want you to open your heart, be ready to receive from the Lord. I believe God has credible things for us here tonight, but also let 's uh let's let 's um open with prayer too and and just ask the Lord to watch over us tonight and and teach us tonight father it 's so important that we hear from you tonight and um, the opinions of man and 50 cents will buy us a cup of coffee somewhere, Lord, but but your word is priceless and your word we treasure we desire to hear from you so as we go through these scriptures Lord, we, we believe that this is your word, we believe that you preserved it for us and you preserved it for us here tonight, so we come in longing and expectation that you have something specifically for us so Lord, just uh, soften our hearts help us to receive the seed of your word Plant deep, may, may those seeds take root, Lord, in our hearts. May those uh, roots bring forth strong, healthy plants that would bear fruit, and that the fruit would remain. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now in Luke's gospel, chapter one, I want to begin with verse fifty seven. Fifty seven. Okay? This is the birth of John the Baptist, and it says, "When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy." Remember, um, we talked about Elizabeth and and uh, the the idea of being barren in these days, not bearing children, having uh, your womb closed was they believed was, uh, was a, almost like a punishment it was um, and, and so here Elizabeth is in her old age now she's, she gives birth to a son and, and uh, they all looked at that as the Lord had shown her great mercy they shared her joy and then it says in verse 59 on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah but his mother spoke up and said no he is to be called John. Now, John, what does your name mean again? God is gracious, right. It's the grace of Jehovah, the grace of Yahweh. He's going to be called the grace of God. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And He asked for a writing tablet. To everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose and he began to speak. And notice what he does. As soon as he begins to speak, it says, He began to speak, praising God. Isn't that cool? The first thing that came out of Zach's mouth was, Praise the Lord. That is so cool. The neighbors were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking all about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with them. It's interesting, we've seen um, some amazing things in this last couple of years. We had uh, one incident where a family, some friends of ours, some close friends of ours, and church family, was driving down Highway 41 in a very bad storm when they were passed by somebody just driving insane. And as they went, the car went by them, it lost control, and it hit their car, and their car began to spin. Uh, one of their children, um, this family that belongs to our church, one of their children was thrown from the vehicle through the window, went out the side window, and I- if you can picture this, Going down the highway, uh, it was thrown out the driver's side of the car, meaning that by all rights he should have landed in the lane of traffic. But because their car had spun around and was now going backwards, he was thrown out into the ditch. And when the accident was over and everybody was picking up, you know, kind of collecting themselves and collecting their thoughts, they noticed one of the children was missing as they went looking for him he came walking back up the ditch. And, and uh, had he been thrown out into the other side of the road, he would have been in traffic. And, I mean, uh, little Jordan, his name is, um, you know, came walking back to the car. They took him by ambulance to the hospital. He had a bunch of staples in his head, and he was pretty banged up, but he was okay. And I was wondering this same thing. Uh, you know, I wonder what this child's going to be. <laughs> obviously God has a plan for Jordan. And you see that, that in the scriptures here tonight, these people are looking at at uh, John, and they're going, <laughs> okay, what about this? You can see God's hand in this. First of all, Elizabeth and Zechariah were old. They were way past childbearing age. God gives them a son. and And because, if you remember, when the angel came to Zechariah and told him how it was going to come to be, because Zechariah didn't believe that that was possible, he was struck dumb. And and so it wasn't until he wrote on the notepad, his name will be John, that he began to speak again. But it's obvious that the Lord's hand is on him. And I know that each one of you, as I look out here tonight, each one of you is a book. And each one of you could tell me a dozen stories of the same types of things that have happened to you. And some of them very recently where you know God's hand was on you. Well, listen to this. His father, it says in verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That that word horn is really a, a symbol of strength. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has said through the holy prophets of long ago. Now, notice how many times we see in the Scripture where in the New Testament people put their faith in what God said in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that a lot in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew continually tells us this was done in order to fulfill that which was spoken of by the prophet and so on and so forth. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3. The reason I open with that, it gives you a little bit more information and a little insight as to verse 1 in chapter 3 of Matthew. And we read, In the days, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judah and saying, Now, we talked about this a little bit, the difference between preaching and teaching. John was a preacher, John's message, his ministry was to the lost. Preaching is to the lost. Teaching is to those that believe, and 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 it's a, a a part of the discipleship plan. Okay, just so you know, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judah, or Judea. But the Judean wilderness. It was about 15 miles north of Jericho, and so that map might come in a little handy for you. You can see where Jericho is on that map. and um, About 15 miles north of Jericho, and it continu- continues all the way down to the Dead Sea, and then it extends back into the Jerusalem hills. It's a very desolate place. It's a very barren place. It's a very dry place. I think there was about one inch of rainfall there per year. Um, if those maps don't reach all the way to the back, we'll, we'll uh, run some after study tonight. But just so you know, it's a, this is a place where uh, the temperatures got to about 120, 125 degrees and dry, and here comes John in those days. He came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, if you remember, one of the themes that we talked about we were going we to hit all the way through Matthew's gospel is the kingdom of heaven. And let me just tell you the kingdom that he's talking about. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, one of the lines in the prayer went like this, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. As it is in heaven. And Jesus was teaching his disciples, including you and I, to pray that his kingdom, his heavenly kingdom, would come down to earth. And so we're still waiting for that to happen, for his kingdom to come and to literally be set up on the earth. I know there's a lot of believers that, a lot of Christians that don't believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ but the Bible clearly teaches a millennial reign a thousand year reign of Christ when the devil is locked up and Jesus rules and reigns from his throne in Jerusalem from David's throne and from there uh, on into the new Jerusalem but in those days John's preaching about the kingdom and he's saying repent the idea is to to turn around to have a change of heart a change of mind change direction, a radical change in your thinking. This was John's message. His message was repentance and the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Now, Matthew tells us, and, and I want you to understand, Matthew's gospel, remember, it's the presentation of Jesus as king, as messiah. So Matthew is writing of John, who is the forerunner to Jesus, and he's saying he's going to come to proclaim this kingdom and this king, this Messiah, Jesus. His kingdom will be realized when his will is done on earth like it is in heaven. That's the whole idea. So, So Matthew mentions the kingdom in one form or another. He mentions the kingdom 51 times in this gospel. So It's a major theme, the kingdom kingdom. Now, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Listen, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now, keep your place there just for a second. Turn over to John's gospel. Okay, we've got the four gospels there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So take a right hand turn, John chapter 1. And I want you to look at verse 19. John chapter 1 and verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Picture this John is out in the desert preaching the kingdom of God is at hand repent and they come and they ask him who he was verse 20 says he did not fail to confess but confessed freely I am not the Christ in other words I am not the Messiah that word Christ is Mashiach anointed one I'm not the Messiah I'm not the Christ so they asked him then who are you are you Elijah he said I'm not are you the prophet He answered, No. And finally they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent to question him said, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. That's an indictment. Here's the you know, Messiah standing right in your midst, and you don't know. He's one stands among you that you don't know, and he's one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, if you look back at uh, Matthew chapter 3, you see that quotation from Isaiah and you understand how that all went down. Verse four says John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. And picture this guy. One thing we can determine by John wearing a leather belt is that he wasn't Hindu. Okay? John was not a Hindu because Hindus don't wear leather. I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> And we went into a uh, one of the Hindu temples when we were ministering in India, and we uh, D- Pastor Dwight and I left our shoes out by the door because I, you know, we knew enough to take your shoes off, but I forgot my belt. And uh, boy, you want to see somebody have a fit? Uh, this priest, and of course, I couldn't tell what he was saying, you know. And I'm I'm just thinking, <laughs> you know, wow, you know if you have to defend your God like that. and I mean, if somebody can cut your God up into strips and make belts out of them, that should be a clue, right? That should be a clue. Uh, But uh, nevertheless, he had to burn incense all day long to make up for me having my belt on in his temple. Anyway, John wore a leather belt. His food was locust and wild honey. Um, wow, it's kind of a lot of carbs. I don't know. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, don't you ask yourselves why? What was it? What was it that drew those people to John and this ministry? I mean, think about this. This is kind of bizarre. Here's this guy preaching in the wilderness, and he—I mean—he's been living out there. You know, the scriptures say he lived out there until his public ministry came. You know, so you can imagine he kind of looked a fright, and you know, locusts in his beard and you know, honey and you know. But I want you to turn with me this time to Luke's Gospel, chapter seven, because. Jesus gives us a clue. Jesus, first of all, he he puts it to the people as a question, but look at Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to start with verse 18. John's disciples told him all about these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask. Now, this is John the Baptist is in prison, okay, and he sends his disciples. John's disciples told him what was going on, okay. Verse 19 says, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? So it seems like John Baptist here is, is having a kind of a lapse of faith or or maybe a, a moment of doubt and, and going, you know, here here is the Messiah. I've been preaching, you know, make way the that make straight the paths for the Lord, and I'm thinking he's going to come and set up his kingdom, and here I am about to get my head cut off. You know, what's up? So he sends these disciples to Jesus. Are you the one to come? Should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind, So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now take note of that because the disciples all thought that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom right then, right there. They had no idea that there would be a couple thousand years between Jesus coming the first time and the second time and setting up his kingdom. They were looking for him to say, And he said, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Okay? Verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Now I want you to get Jesus' take on John the Baptist. This is Jesus' take on John the Baptist. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed, swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge, indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you. You will prepare your way Who will prepare your way before you? I tell you, among those born of women, there is no greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Hmm. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what, then, can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Now as you make your way back to Matthew's Gospel, You understand a little bit more why the people were going out there and why they were affected like this and why they were confessing their sin and why they were being baptized by John. John told them the Messiah is near. The Messiah is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. Turn around. Listen. Verse 7 says, well, it it goes on to say, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And then verse 7 goes on to say, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you can do this study on your own on the backside of that same handout that I gave you. There's a little study on the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and some of the other sects that uh, that we deal with, the Zealots and the um, Herodians and the Sians. Um But anyway, when John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Now, <laughs> I want you to understand that's that's not... Uh, I'm sure he didn't learn that from Dale Carnegie. I mean, this is not how you win friends and influence people, by calling them, by calling the religious leaders and the political leaders of the day brood of vipers. What that means is, you came from a snake egg. That's where you were hatched. Don't tell me that your father is Abraham. You're the son of you're the sons of snakes. Okay, so John's not not uh, going out for a popularity contest here. He says to them, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance." Now, the fruit that comes from repentance. If you want to do a little side study on this and you want to see, uh, you know, some we're going to get into a little bit about producing good fruit here. Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 16 through 26. Um, what it what Paul does in writing this letter to the church in the province of Galatia is he tells, he, he gives a, a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. John says to these this brood of vipers, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, turn from your sins, turn from your wicked ways, turn to God, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Wow, that's harsh. But you know, John the Baptist is calling a spade a spade here. He's not pulling any punches. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now this is pretty incredible. This is an incredible study because John is telling those who are in charge, the scribes, the Pharisees, those who are, um, those who are in charge of, of co- even copying the law, they know their stuff. These are incredible insults to them. But he says, it's about the fruit. What are you producing? What are you producing? Good fruit is produced by the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They were rejecting Jesus, and by doing so, they were rejecting the Holy Spirit. They were rejecting the Father. They were rejecting the Son. They were rejecting the Spirit. And he says, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. Verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. Do you see the humility in John Baptist's ministry? I like that because I see a lot of arrogance in men's ministries today. And... Um, when I think of Jesus' words that we just read in Luke chapter seven, when He said that those born of woman, women, there were none greater than John the Baptist, none greater than John the Baptist, I'm going. Wait a minute, His ministry. If you if you look through the scriptures, you can search with a fine tooth comb, and you will never find among the ministry of John the Baptist, you will not find one miracle. You will not find one supernatural work that John the Baptist did. Do you know what John the Baptist's whole ministry was? Pointing to Jesus. Pointing to Jesus. Pointing to Jesus. And Jesus said there's none greater. That's what I want to do. I want to point to Jesus. Look at the humility. I'm not, will, I'm not, I'm not worthy to, to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is kind of sad to have to bring this up, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit has been uh, tied to a a, a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, foolishness, unbiblical, unscriptural things. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of fire. Somebody asked me, recently what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, and the first thing I thought of was, if you turn with me for a second to John, John's Gospel, in chapter 7. The first time that anything was mentioned, this was before the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, this was before um, men had experienced... uh, any of the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but it says in verse 37, John 7 and verse 37, they were celebrating the, the feast, um, the feast of tabernacles. Okay? That was a, they were celebrating the, the wilderness wanderings. Um, and it says in verse 37, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, how many is anyone? Is it pretty inclusive? Anyone, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, now that's the key, you guys. That was the key in John chapter 3 when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus. The key is faith in Jesus. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then in his narrative, John says in verse 39, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, baptized, when I, when I baptize uh, people or I do teachings on baptism, there's a little, um, there's a little exercise that I usually do, and I, I take a glass, and I take a pitcher of water, and I have the pitcher of water just filled and and I'll begin to pour water into that glass and I'll say you know when when you first come to Christ that spiritual birth takes place when you first put your faith in Jesus you're sealed with the holy spirit in other words everything that everything that makes up uh the chemicals that make up H2O or water, everything that you need is is in this glass. Now I've poured from the pitcher to the water as a, as a sign of, you know, you've put your faith in Jesus. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Ephesians. But then I keep pouring, and I say, in John chapter seven, Jesus said, "Come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink." He is our source. He is the source. And so we we, we come and, and we learn of him. And we develop a relationship with him. And I just keep pouring until that water fills the glass. But I don't stop when it fills the glass. I keep pouring it until it comes out the top and it starts running all over the floor. And people are kind of going, <gasps> you know, what? he's not paying attention. He's not looking. No, the object is, the idea is. You get so filled up that you can't really hold it in anymore. And as it flows, it flows out and it affects everybody around you. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some people have made that into a one-time deal. It's not a one-time deal. It's a constant drinking. It's a constant filling up and it's a constant overflowing. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-shot thing. It's over and over and over. Now, John is saying, I baptize in water. His baptism was not, it wasn't for salvation, it wasn't for, his baptism was unto repentance. And you see that later in Acts, where Paul runs into some uh, disciples of John. And they were baptized into John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. Well, Paul begins to tell them about Jesus, who John was pointing to. And as they put their faith in Jesus, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you know. And so the idea is, John is saying here, I baptize you with with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what's up with the fire? Fire is a a scary thing. Fire is a good thing when it's controlled. Fire is a good thing when it serves its purpose. Did you ever hear uh, God referred to as an all-consuming fire? There's a a popular worship chorus out there right now that our God is an all-consuming fire. It's true. For the believer, that's a good thing because here's what God is doing. The fire in the believer's life purifies. In the the case of uh, gold and silver and precious stones, it purifies. But also in the life of the believer, the wood and the hay and the stubble in our lives burns up burns up fire is used as in in terms of judgment okay there's a judgment for unbelievers it's called the white throne judgment found in revelation there's a judgment for believers if you're a believer you're not going to be at the white throne judgment praise the lord that's for the unbelievers Uh, remember what i said um born twice die once born once die twice okay the white throne judgment is referred to as the second death. That's for people who aren't born again. For those who have been born spiritually, who have put their faith in Jesus, there's only one death, then the judgment. Okay? But the judgment that takes place for believers, I want to take you there for a second, just turn to first Corinthians. Um, after the gospel, you'll after the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll run into Acts and Romans, and then First Corinthians chapter three. I want to show you this just as we're talking about fire, and then we'll get back into Matthew and cruise for a while. Fire as judgment. Look at verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 3. By the grace God has given me. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. You understand that's that's non-negotiable, you guys. <laughs> faith in Jesus Christ is the foundation. If your faith is not in Jesus Christ, you have no foundation. You won't understand a thing I'm saying. Um, Verse twelve: If any man builds on this foundation, now look at—he's going to look at some building materials here. If any man builds on this foundation, which is Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day—the day that—that day, that is uh, the the day of the Lord. Second um, Peter three talks about the day of the Lord. Uh, we went through a whole study on that. It's a, it's an awesome study. The, the Judgment Day of the Lord. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will he will receive his reward. If it is burnt up, he will suffer loss. But notice the end of the verse. He himself will be saved but only as one escaping through the flames. So you understand this judgment here is not judging your salvation. You're already, you're already so if your faith is in Jesus and you have that foundation, you're saved, okay? But what are you building with? What are you building with? Now John the Baptist says, okay, here we are, guys. You're repenting. I'm baptizing in water. There's one coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He literally wants to dwell in us. And that's what John's saying. He wants to live in you, not just walk with you. He wants to dwell in you. Now, if that's not enough to fry your mind, that God wants to live in us, think about this. It doesn't end there. He wants to flow from us. He wants to touch other people's lives by living in us. So it's this flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so here we are. He says he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire and then the reason why I tied this all together is because verse 12 in Matthew chapter 3 says his winnowing fork is in his hand. Now, you know what the winnowing fork is for. They, they would take uh, out on a hillside. They would go where there was kind of a breeze and they would take this big wide fork or shovel and they would pick up the wheat and they would toss it up in the air. And as they tossed it up in the air, the grain that you wanted to save was heavy. And it would come down and land in a pile. But the chaff, which is, by the way, what God wants to burn up in our lives, that's why He's an all consuming fire. He wants to save what's good, purify what's good, but burn up the chaff. So the winnowing fork is in His hand, He says, and He will clear His threshing floor. The threshing floor was where they separated the wheat from the chaff, gathering His wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Is it clear? Is it clear? John's message is pretty clear, and there's everybody there—from people who are who are pure-hearted and want to know and want to repent and want to turn to God—to people who want to hold their positions. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees—they, you know—they were interested in their position. They were interested in power, not in the uh, uh, the truth that transforms. So, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. To be baptized by John, wow, what an irony! Watch this now. remember how I said that John was or I'm sorry that Matthew was going to show in his gospel that Jesus was willing to identify with sinners? Watch what Jesus does. It says Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, huh, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Now, understand that the purpose here was Jesus was uh, identifying himself with sinful man. All these people are coming and confessing their sins, right? But Jesus had no sin to confess. Yet he gets in line and goes and, be in, and is baptized under repentance, but he didn't have anything to repent for. The cool thing to me, as I read this, it just it hit me today as I was preparing my heart to teach this study. It hit me today that Jesus didn't didn't stand up before John baptized him and say, "Now look, you know, I want you all to know that I'm not here because I have sin, you know. I mean, that's we're not dealing with that here." You notice Jesus didn't do that. He was baptized by John, just like everybody else. That's amazing to me. That is amazing to me. And as soon, it says in verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The testimony of the Father. Here you see the Trinity present at the baptism of Jesus. You see Jesus as he's going into the water to have John baptize him. You see the Spirit descending bodily in the form of a dove. And then the Father speaks out and says, This is my Son whom I love. So he says, With him I am well pleased. This, I mean, the Father points out the Son. The Father points out the Son. Jesus wasn't showboating. He wasn't going, hey, (laughs) you know, okay, you know, I'll get baptized with the rest of you. I just want you to know that I'm not doing this because I have any sin. Now, in chapter 4. It says Jesus was led, this is after his baptism now, in the beginning of his public ministry, by the way. I want to show you what Jesus thinks about the written word. This is important to you and I. When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, that that kind of, that threw me for a loop because I'm like, wait a minute. The Holy Spirit would lead Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wow. Do you know that temptation is part of life? It's part of life. Jesus identifies with man everything that we have experienced, he experienced. The temptations that we face, he faced. And you know what? He 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 didn't do it. He didn't do it as God he did it as man. I want to show you how. This is covered also in Luke's gospel, also chapter 4, but here in Matthew, it says after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. Now, it's it's kind of a known fact. I don't know how long any of you guys have ever fasted, but once you get past day 5, the hunger goes away. The first the first 3 days are are the worst. I mean, Everybody looks like a cheeseburger. You know, (laughs) you're trying to, you know, keep your sanity. After day five, the hunger goes away. But toward the end of that fast, right before you go into the stages where you literally begin to starve, the hunger comes back. Jesus was in that stage. He was in that stage where in the flesh, in his body, was physically going into a starvation mode because the hunger started coming back. He fasted 40 days, he hungered. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, now I, I know that um, that looks like uh, the devil doesn't believe that Jesus is the son of God. But really, in the Greek, that translates more to, toward uh, since you are the Son of God. But either way, if you are the Son of God or since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Hmm. What's he saying? here? What's the temptation? The temptation is use your divine powers to satisfy the flesh. That's the temptation. And Jesus could have done that. He could have done that. If he can turn the stones into worshipers, which he said would happen, remember when, at the uh, triumphal entry when they they told him, "Hey, keep your disciples quiet, tell them to be quiet. He said, well, if they're quiet, the stones will cry out you know so if the the rocks could become worshipers they it could certainly become bread I mean that was nothing for Jesus, but look at what he says and look at how he responds because if you under if you understand uh if you understand this it will help you to discern a lot of the foolishness that's going on these days in the church in the name of the Lord. People using divine powers or claiming to use divine powers to satisfy the flesh. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I want you to use that as your litmus test. If you can't picture Jesus doing something, it's a pretty good idea that you should stay away from it. You know, When I see some of the weird things that are going on in Christian circles, In the name of the Holy Spirit. You know, people barking like dogs and flopping on the floor like a fish. I see those things. I can't picture Jesus doing that. To me it's very simple. It's not the Lord. Simple. Case closed. But look at how he responds. Jesus answered, It is written. What does he do? He uses the written word of God. There's power in the word of God. But Jesus doesn't use some divine power and turn the turn the Uh, Stone into bread. He says, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Attention to himself. Never. He didn't do it. He simply uses the word of God. Then, verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city. And that's not Rome, by the way, you guys. That's Jerusalem. I know that Rome is, is usurping those titles that were reserved for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Jerusalem in the Bible. Israel is Israel in the Bible. Babylon is Babylon. You understand? And, and at this point, I, I mean, we live in a crazy world. We live in a time of great deception. And, uh, and we're seeing a lot of things coming out of Rome right now. Uh, claiming himself to be the holy city and all that. But this one, the, when, when it says, the devil took him to the holy city, he's talking about Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and that's how I know that, because the temple wasn't in Rome. It was in Jerusalem. If you are the devil, uses Scripture. I'm amazed at how many times I find people twisting God's word. Some unintentionally, some intentionally, some very intentionally, some for their own gain. But I want you to know that the devil uses Scripture. And he says, it is, this is the devil speaking now. It's written that he will command his angels concerning you and they, will, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Hmm. Something that doesn't line up all the way from Genesis to Revelation is not the right interpretation. You understand? Somebody starts pulling something out of its context to say, let me give you an example. This is kind of a crazy example, but I remember talking to some guys who were having a real hard time uh, quitting smoking dope. And it is good. And they thought, ha, got him now. We got him now. Now what's he going to say? And I said, okay, every herb, every plant is good, right? They said, yeah. I said, all right, well, let's go pick some mushrooms i got some mushrooms that grow out in my woods, and I don't want you to pick out just the edible ones. I want you to just eat them all. Well, we're not going to do that. Why not? Because some of them are deadly. Well, but God made them all, and they're all good. You see where I'm going with this? To, to pull something out of its context and say, or you got the person that says, well, it's all natural. It's all natural. It must be good. And I'm going, yeah, so is lightning. So is snake venom. It's all natural. You don't want to ingest it, but it's all natural. And the devil says, you know, here's here's what's written, and the Lord says, no, here's what's written. And I want you to understand, when you see somebody twisting, whose signature is twisting the Scripture, you know whose signature is on that. In verse 8 again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now there's something interesting about this portion of Scripture. Jesus again resists, and I want you to know that James tells us in in James 4, 7, it says if you resist the devil when he's tempting you, he'll flee. You don't have to freak and flee. He'll flee. There's one sin that the scriptures tell us over and over, get your track shoes on, and those are sexual sins. Get your track shoes on when you're in that situation because it's much too strong for you. The pull is too strong. Get out of there, just like Joseph did. I mean, he was in lusts. But the resisting of the devil, the standing firm in the word of God, he flees. He's got no choice but to flee. But I want you to notice something about this passage. When the devil says... All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't say, it's not yours to give. Because you know what? This world right now does lie in the lap of the wicked one. It was given over to him by Adam and Eve when they fell in the garden. They lost it. They lost the deed. But praise the Lord. When you get into the book of Revelation and you see that that deed that was sealed with seven seals and nobody could open it, except then one of the elders says, John, don't weep because there is one that can open it. It's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John beheld him, he beheld him as a lamb that had been slain. Jesus, demon again. But at this point, he doesn't argue with Satan. He doesn't say it's not yours to give. He just says, go away from me. It's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Now, in Luke's Gospel, it says that he left him until an opportune time. You know, the devil doesn't give up. He still hasn't given up. So when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum. That's up on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's still there. In Fact: When we were walking into Capernaum one time, we were there. I saw a sign on the entrance of the to the to the gate that said uh, "Jesus' hometown." <laughs> I thought, "Jesus' hometown? Where'd they get that?" Well, this is where they get that. Uh, everybody's claiming um, where Jesus walked, but anyway, he left Nazareth, went to live in Capernaum, said by the prophet Isaiah. Now here again, Matthew goes back to the Old Testament and quotes Isaiah: "Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali." And the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he calls the first disciples. He calls the first disciples. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. You'll understand that as we go on in this gospel. At once they left their nets and followed him. Amazing. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You know, this is what makes a great disciple. One that when Jesus calls, they're just happy to follow. Happy and humble. Drop what they're doing. Follow Jesus. Well, verse 23 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the I can't imagine what it would have been like to watch Jesus and the compassion that he had. On the sick, and as we go through this gospel, it's an amazing thing. I want you to read ahead for next week. I want you to look at Matthew chapters five through seven. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Lord willing next week and um until then, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being in your word tonight. I thank You so much that You reveal Yourself to us. Everything that You want us to know about You, You equip us, Lord. You equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And I thank You, Father. Thank You for Your Holy Spirit. to seek You, to ask, to knock, to spend time with You daily in the big things and the little things. And I pray, Lord, that You'd have the last word. So as we leave this place, Father, help us to take what we've learned tonight and help us to live it. Help us to shine your word all about it. There's a lost and dying world out there, Lord, and they really need to hear the gospel. So we pray for boldness and strength courage, Lord, just to, just to be good ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen.